Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this evening's Africa Talks lecture hosted by the LSE Africa Initiative and the Geography and Environment Department. Africa Talks provides a platform for African voices to, as they say, inform and transform global debate about the continent, its challenges and broader lessons. A series of lectures funded generously by the Annual Fund and the Public Lecture Series uh, makes space for critical thought about African realities and possible futures. These concerns are central to the work of tonight's speaker, a South African scholar with an abiding interest in questions of democratic social change in post-apartheid South Africa. Gillian Hart is Professor of Geography and Chair of the Undergraduate Major in Development Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. She's also Honorary Research Professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. Gillian has had a long and illustrious career, and she's made many fundamental contributions to a wide set of fields, so that's just a warning that I'm going to be uh, to restrict myself to a few of these moments in her career. Uh, Jill's early work on agrarian change in Java and her first book, Power, Labor, Labor and Livelihood, remains foundational in agrarian studies. In, intervening in a rather economistic debate about interlocking transactions or the ways in which markets and land, labor, and credit intertwine and allow individuals to exercise social power across them, Jill argued early on that political economists ought to study power more carefully and across scale from the local to regional, national, and beyond. And this has been an abiding theme in her work expressed early on in a book called Agrarian Transformations. Jill has also made key contributions to feminist political economy, and here her work was influenced by a remarkable group of scholars, including Sarah Berry, Pauline Peters, and Jane Geyer, all of whom shared a deep commitment to grounded research, as well as to a critique of Eurocentric and masculinist forms of explanation. Jill's Subsequent work in Malaysia explored agrarian change, gendered circuits of migration, and forms of gendered public action that escaped the view of prominent scholars, to put it more bluntly, where Jim Scott only saw weapons of the weak, Jill found women engaged in overt and quite innovative forms of political association. So these are just a few uh, highlights. Uh, but when the South, Af South African Liberation Movement organizations were unbanned in 1990, Jill quickly returned to her native South Africa, to engage in long-term research, to, to, to uh, debate economic policy uh, in democratic times, and also, importantly, to participate in challenges of transformation in higher education, uh, in helping nurture the next generation of critical scholars, and in finding opportunities for popular engagement in light of contemporary challenges. Her book, uh, Disabling Globalization, Places of Power in Post-Apartheid South Africa, has become a key text for understanding the contradictions of post-apartheid development uh, and the different ways in which these contradictions are engaged with on the ground in, in communities. One of the key insights here is that almost a century after the mass dispossessions of the black majority in the early 20th century, the uh, uh, centenary is next year, the challenges that post-apartheid struggles face today has been to shift from the land question to broader questions of the social wage. This astute observation continues to challenge contemporary social justice, scholarship, and activism. Um, Jill has continued to go back to South Africa at least once a year. We usually meet in warmer climes. She's finishing a sequel to Disabling Globalization, which we can expect in the near future. Most of all, Jill exemplifies an ethic of engagement and learning from the South and from South African ground realities. She 
uh, truly lives with Antonio Gramsci's call and admonition that the educator must be educated. And this is not a plug for a new book called uh, Jill's latest edition called Gramsci, Space, Nature, and Politics. There are some flyers floating around as well, which uh, the book is by, uh, is out uh, in the Antipode book series from Wiley Blackwell. The flyers around for 20% discount. Um, this is not a minor aside, but I'm personally delighted to introduce Professor Hart because she happens to have been my teacher, and she remains for me a continuing inspiration for what's possible as a progressive scholar today. Jill's talk this evening is called Replacing the Nation, South Africa's Passive Revolution. It's a question. Please join me in welcoming Professor Gillian Hart. Well, thank you, Sharad, for that wonderfully generous introduction and also for inviting me. It's be, it, it really is... Um, a great honor and pleasure to be here. And I also really appreciate this opportunity to try out some of the arguments of the book on you. So I'm going to try to leave enough time at the end for a, for a substantive discussion um, because, as I say, it's, it's a book that's on the edge of trying to come to completion, but things keep going on in South Africa uh, that stretch it out. Um, and originally I had set this book up uh, to pick up where my book Disabling Globalization left off, which was really with the Bridell land invasion in 2001. And looking back, I, I remain convinced that Bridell was an absolutely key moment in the post-apartheid order. And I think it really represented a moment when ANC hegemony began to unravel. Its moral authority, the moral authority of the ANC, was sort of fundamentally undermined. And what happened was that this was in early July of 2001. Thousands of settlers bought tiny little plots of land uh, for the equivalent of about $3.00 in an area between Johannesburg and Pretoria. And what the ANC government did was they moved in and very quickly evicted uh, what they called illegal squatters. And this was also a moment when a lot of things were going on in Zimbabwe, and the Minister of Land Affairs, Toko Didiza, made very clear that we are not Zimbabwe and we are showing the strength of the ANC. But they added, at, I think, an enormous cost in terms of the ANC's moral authority. And originally, this book was going to be about the decade of the 2000s. And of course, things kept on happening, including in 2011, uh, Julius Malema's youth movement really sort of took hold. And of course, um, the Marikana massacre that happened on, on August 16th. And I really do think that Marikana is a fundamentally important moment. If Bridell represented the point at which the ANC's hegemony was, was initially starting to, uh, to be undermined, Marikana represented a profound break. And time will tell how profound and deep that is, but 
my sense is that it's, it's very significant. So that what this book then is about is sort of uh, from Bridell to Maracana. And the whole question of how do we theorize what's been going on, and very importantly, what are the political stakes in how we think about all of this. So today, this evening, what I want to try to do is three things. Um, first of all, what I want to do is in a very sort of uh, sketchy and skeletal way, I want to outline the escalating tensions that really gathered force from 2001 onwards. This notion of 2001 as a key, an absolutely key turning point. Then secondly, what I want to do is I want to argue that in order to come to grips with what I'm calling the long decade of the 2000s, we really have to go back at least to the early 1990s and rethink the transition from apartheid. And the standard argument is that the transition was really about elite pacting between white corporate capital and the ANC. And I want to argue, what I want to argue is, yes, of course it was about that, but I think it was about much more. And I want to suggest an argument cast in terms of think, rethinking the transition in terms of simultaneous processes of denationalization and renationalization that have been playing out in relation to one another in increasingly conflictual ways. And I will explain in much more detail what I mean precisely by de- and renationalization. But essentially, what it's a way of trying to come to grips with the unraveling of ANC hegemony on the one hand, and the proliferation of an increase, I think, an increasingly dangerous populist politics on the other, which certainly, I think, in the figure of Malema is tending more and more towards fascism. And of course, Malema's future is up in the air, but um, the, the, I'm trying to come to grips with, with the way politi political forces have unfolded um, over this decade. Now, in order to uh, sort of think more broadly about these processes, I want to stand back and suggest that these simultaneous processes of de- and renationalization actually represent the specific form of South Africa's passive revolution. And um, the best single one-line definition of passive revolution is by Alex Kalinikos, who argue, who defined passive revolution, uh, this key concept coming out of Gramsci, as socio-political processes in which revolution-inducing revolution strains are at once displaced and partially fulfilled. So in other words, passive revolution does refer to significant political, economic, institutional changes but at the same, and, and you know, some scholars argue modernization, but at the same time, um, the, the pressures from below for, for change are, uh, are co-opted and contained. And that is where it is the passive deformation of a potential revolution. Um, that either institutes capitalist relations of production or enables capitalist relations of production to go on, although in a, in a new kind of a form. Now, 
What I think is useful about passive revolution is that it's a way of thinking relationally and comparatively about what has been going on in South Africa in relation to what is going on in many other parts of the world. And I think that what is significant about what has been going on in, that is about South Africa is that it's an extreme but not exceptional um, embodiment of forces at play in many different parts of the world, especially since the early 1990s. And, you know, just very briefly, I think what, what we've been seeing increasingly, on the one hand, is escalating inequality um, going on simultaneously with the generation of surplus populations, um, what Michael Denning has called a wageless life, uh, what a director of the Bundesbank called populations with no productive function. Um, secondly, what we've seen is politics that can and do go in many different directions. And on the one hand, we have, of course, seen the, um, the, the, the movements in the Middle East, the so-called Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, and so forth. But very importantly, what we've also seen are proliferating forms of populisms and fascisms, uh, ranging from the Tea Party to um, Hindutva, Hindu nationalism, to the rise of fascist parties in many different parts of Europe. Um, and often these quite conflicting politics going on simultaneously, for example, in Greece, at the same time as, as these forces have been going on, what we have seen are official interventions to try to contain them, ranging from, on the one hand, biopolitical interventions that are often made in the name of a kinder and gent gentler form of neoliberalism to just flat-out police brutality. And at the structurally adjusted the structurally adjusted University of California, we've seen a lot of the flat-out police brutality, believe me, um, and the ways in which it is increasingly militarized. Um, as this is what Marikana partly was all about. So that um, the whole question of uh, how do we think more broadly about South Africa is the reason why I'm drawing quite heavily on this concept of passive revolution. But I'm going to also argue that, that we need to do so in quite a careful way, and I'm going to suggest some of the dimensions of all of that. Okay, so let me start off with sort of the first piece, which really turns around, uh, you know, I'm, I'm calling it from Bridell to Marikana, and it, it's a really, it's a diet, what we've seen over the, over the, this stretch of years is a dialectical back and forth pro, process of protest and containment. And this really, I think Bridell was significant because it came just before the World Conference Against Racism, which was in August of 2001. And then exactly a year later, the World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg, which was the biggest um, uh, uh, world conference ever. And what is important about what happened here is that so what came to be called new social movements really erupted in this period. 
they'd been gathering force in the late 90s, but it was really around the time of Bridell that they burst into the open. And the Landers People's Movement, for instance, was formed three weeks after the Bridell land uh, occupation. Um, The anti-privatization forum, the anti-eviction campaign, um, the treatment action campaign, not quite of the same order. But what was interesting about these so-called new social movements is that they were really able to take advantage of this international stage and they burst onto it and they grabbed it and in a very spectacular way. And, you know, many of us were very excited about this. And, and it was, this was a set of protests framed very explicitly in terms of anti-neoliberalism. It was profoundly embarrassing for the ANC government, and it represented something really new and different. And after the initial disappointments of the ANC's turn to very... Uh, conservative macroeconomic policies. You know, this really looked like, okay, so neoliberalism is calling forth, you know, this bottom-up movement. But what is significant is that um, by by around 2003-2004, almost without exceptions, these these so-called new social movements imploded. And there are many complicated reasons why this happened, and I'm not going to go into them, but we can talk about them if anybody is interested. But I think what emerged um, in the wake of the, and and as the the new social movements were, were sort of falling apart, what we saw were proliferating expressions of popular anger and discontent often coexisting with a sort of a a sullen acquiescence. And the sort of broad term that I've used to try to capture all of this is movement beyond movements. This popular anger that that lies beyond the scope of the new social movements but has been profoundly important and amplifying and proliferating over the course of the 2000s right up to the present. And I just want to move quickly through what they are. First, uh, what in South Africa are called, I think, misnamed service delivery protests. Um, And these are, there are so many of them now. There are thousands upon thousands. And uh, a colleague of mine uh, who counts carefully, insists that South Africa has the highest per capita rate of protests in the world. But the thing about these protests is that they, they often flare up with intense anger, um, and they often are directed at particular issues related <clears throat> to local government, water, housing, electricity, and so forth. And some of the most... Um, some of the most intense struggles have been around a whole new phase of slum removal, forced removals, <clears throat> excuse me, that the ANC government has, has set in place. But these, uh, these protests are so common now that um, they're not even reported 
on the, uh, in the news. And the, or many of them are not reported in the news. And the way you know they're happening is um, the traffic report in the morning, John Byrne says, Rob Byrne says, well, you know, don't go, they're burning tires on this road, so take, take a back route, and he gives you which route you, you, you can take so that you don't encounter the tires burning in the road. And it's become, it's become so mundane and banal that nobody takes in, you know, that, that it's just part of everyday life. Um, but part of what I want to argue is that what this all represents is the way in which local government has actually emerged as the key site of contradictions in the post-apartheid order. And I don't have time tonight to go into this in any detail. Um, but, I, you know, again, I'd be happy to talk about it in... Um, uh, in the discussion. Uh, but whereas in the first phase of the post-apartheid order, I think local government was a site of contradictions, it really now is where, where all these tensions sort of come, come together. And fundamentally, um, what, what, what I think local government represents is the impossible terrain of official efforts to manage poverty and deprivation in a racially inflected uh, capitalist society marked by these vicious inequalities. Um, now, the second form of, of movement beyond movements uh, really rose up in 2005, and that turned around deep popular support for Jacob Zuma. And there were many people who dismissed this and who saw it as um, uh, sort of manipulated mindless masses. But the fact of the matter is that support for Zuma was very deep and very real. And it came as a surprise to many people when Zuma defeated Mbeki in 2007 at the Polokwane conference. Um, but I think that there's something very important going on with this whole issue around uh, support for Zuma, which, of course, it has entered into a whole new phase now um, but, and, and has eroded spectacularly. Um, but it was, at that moment, very significant. In 2008, we saw a further manifestation of movement beyond movements in the form of really quite vicious attacks on people defined as excessively foreign. And uh, this came to be called, this term xenophobia has been called into question uh, by some who argue that actually this is really Afrophobia. But the fact of the matter is that 62 people were murdered and many others um, uh, injured and displaced by these, these, these very vicious attacks. Fourth, uh, and even though the overt violence uh, sort of subsided, there are still many manifestations of what, might call, what one might call sort of everyday forms of xenophobia. Um, the fourth manifestation is the youth movement that Julius Malema helped to call forth. And if one remembers that probably somewhere in the vicinity of 70% of young people in South Africa today will never have any form of secure employment. Um, it is actually not that difficult to tap into this popular anger. 
And Malema has done it with, uh, I think we should not um, underestimate uh, Malema's power to articulate popular anger and to tap into that anger in a way that Zuma did in 2005 but is no longer able. But Malema, and this is one of the reasons why Malema is useful to those opposing uh, uh, Zuma. Um, but it's also why, I, I, and of course, Malema has opened himself up to you know, enormous corruption and what have you and is now being um, smacked down upon by uh, the Zuma group. But nevertheless, this... The, this anger of young people is palpable, and it's there. Um, and then Mar- Marikana. And Marikana is very interesting because it represents, again, a, a sort of a whole new phase of labor struggle, but it's labor struggle that is linked to what is going on in the places where people live. It turns around the perpetuation of migrant labor, it turns around systems of labor contracting. It turns around systems of indebtedness in which the unions and the mining companies are actually deeply in cahoots. And it represents a fundamental dismissal of COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which is in alliance with the African National Congress. And of all these movements, I think it, it, it represents a break that we haven't seen before in the post-apartheid era. So the question then is, how do, we, how do we understand this proliferating popular anger? And I think a key point here is that this is that what we've seen is a process through which this proliferating popular protest has actually gone hand in hand with increasing interventionism by the ANC government. You know, it was very easy in the early 2000s to talk about the ANC's orthodox neoliberalism. But in fact, what we've seen over the decade of the 2000s um, are, uh, is, a, is a, a growing pro-poor um, uh, developmental rhetoric. We've seen dramatically rising expenditure on, for instance, social grants. Um, we have seen much more money coming from national government down to um, local government, along with, with much tighter control over local government. And I think that what's really important here is that it's on one level, it's very easy to dismiss this increasing interventionism in terms of sort of sheep's clothing draped over a neoliberal capitalist wolf. But I think that that is really um, too limited. Because what is interesting is the ways in which I think these growing efforts to try to contain popular anger and discontent, at least in some ways, are feeding back into and inflaming the very conditions that they were designed to try to keep under control. 
And in relation, this is a story and an argument that turns around digging deeply into what is going on at the level of local government. Um, uh, and that is where the whole issue of, of local government as a key site of contradictions is really crucial. But that um, the ways in which these biopolitical efforts to try to keep things under control actually partially work but also generate new um, and escalating forms of tension or are associated with uh, new and escalating forms of tension. And the question then is, how do we explain this? Um, how do we think about it? And let me take a little break here and I'll get on. Okay, so this is where... I think the whole issue of going back to the early 1990s and rethinking the transition from apartheid is really important. And what I want to argue is that the transition was not just a matter of elite pacting through which corporate capital and the ANC struck a deal to preserve capitalist property relations and embrace neoliberal economic policies as a sort of a quid pro quo for extending citizenship to black South Africans. And I want to argue that more fundamentally, the transition from apartheid entailed simultaneous processes of denationalization and renationalization that are playing out in relation to each other <clears throat> in increasingly conflictual ways. So let me start with what, what do I mean by denationalization? Um, and here it, it's an argument that includes but goes beyond the ANC's embrace of neoliberal economic policies in the form of, of the growth, employment, and redistribution plan. And it encompasses an analysis by Ben Fine uh, and, and his associates that I think is extremely powerful in which what they do is <clears throat> they call attention to uh, the, what, they, what they name the minerals energy complex. And by the minerals energy complex, they mean this extremely concentrated form of accumulation that has emerged in South Africa since the late 19th century discovery of minerals. Um, and has fundamentally shaped the course of capitalist accumulation in South Africa. And it really remains a primary force today. And what this analysis does is it directs attention to this very heavily concentrated character of South African corporate capital. In 1990, when the ANC was unbanned, um, four, five corporations controlled more than 80, well over 80% of the capitalization of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Um, and they've unbundled since then. But what this very powerful white corporate capitalist class was able to do was define the highly advantageous terms on which they, they re-engaged with the global economy after the fall of apartheid through their relations with strategically placed forces within the African National Congress. And what is important here is that over the 1980s, 
white corporate capital was really sort of uh, was affected very heavily by sanctions and divestment. And uh, what Fine and company show is the way in which new forms of financialization emerged within the South African economy. And, at the, and that these were, force, these were um, uh, sort of corporate forces that by the mid-1980s were beginning to push very hard for a resolution to the ongoing crisis, which the apartheid state was unable to contain. And, you know, we now have a much better and more in-depth understanding of the ways in which um, white corporate capital played a crucial role in how the transition um, uh, proceeded. And that what they did then was not, not just to um, ensure neoliberal economic policies, but to actually define the terms on which they uh, sort of restructured and then denationalized their operations. And on, so let me tell you a story about And one of the things that happened in the late 1990s was these large, a number of these large conglomerates um, le- essentially listed on the London Stock Exchange. And Sherrod and I were walking across the bridge to the Tate Modern on Sunday, and I looked over to uh, the left, and there, I don't know if any, any of you have noticed it, is this very elegant old mutual building. Next time you go across that bridge, look at that building. Uh, at the entrance to which are two Union Jacks. The old mutual was the biggest insurance company in South Africa, and one of those that delisted, that, that, that delisted from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and relisted on the London Stock Exchange. But there's not a sign of its South African origins. And this is a perfect example of what I'm calling denationalization. Um, the other really important part of dimension of denationalization is massive and, and escalating capital flight. And what uh, uh, Fine and others have shown is that the, the extent of capital flight from South Africa is absolutely massive and far exceeds um, uh, investment within the domestic economy. Um, What's also happened, of course, is the formation of a small, very powerful um, black capitalist class, which is closely allied with white corporate capital. And a perfect example of that around Marikana was the way in which Cyril Ramaphosa, who had been the head of the National Union of Mine Workers in the 80s, um, their emails came to light in which he was, uh, he is a major shareholder in Lonmin, the mine where the Marikana massacres happened. There were emails from Ramaphosa to Lonmin saying, clean up these guys, you know, stop this nonsense. Um, also very important coming out of all this is the way in which understandings of the economy and of what is possible that have been fostered through through these alliances um, continue to exert a powerful and ongoing um, influence over ANC government policy. 
<clears throat> and these, these are precisely the forces that play into and, in and intensify the brutal inequalities. I mean, South Africa is now the most unequal society on earth. Uh, alongside the degradation of livelihoods of a very large proportion of the South African population. And the, what has come to be called the jobs bloodbath in South Africa is, is palpable. Now, what I want to argue is that this whole configuration of processes and forces through which and the political alliances through which South African capital reconnected with the global economy is enormously important, and, but it's only part of the story. And what is also of fundamental importance, but largely neglected uh, and, and, and neglect, by the left, and I think in very dangerous ways, is turns around the whole question of what I'm calling renationalization. And I think that because we don't like nationalism, we tend to ignore it, and we do so, I think, really at our peril in a fundamental way. And the key point here, I think, is that the moment of transition in the early 1990s, the South African nation actually did not exist. Um, that it had to be conjured into existence from the ruins and the rubbles of, rubble of the past. Um, and the process through which the nation has been produced is vitally important. And here I think, instead of thinking of nationalism, it's much more useful to think in terms of multiple changing articulations of both official and popular nationalisms. And this term articulation uh, has a long lineage and many different meanings. Uh, <clears throat> the one that I want to latch on to with some, some amendments is uh, what Stuart Hall laid out in, in picking up and expanding on Ernesto Laclau's uh, conception of articulation when Leclerc was still a Marxist as the, both a joining together and giving expression to. So that this is what's useful about this concept of articulation. It gets at both practices of joining together and, um, and the giving expression to. But I think what actually is, is somewhat missing from Hall's exposition of the concept of passive revolution, of, of rather that's on my brain, of articulation, is in fact Gramsci had a very deep, serious analysis of language and translation. And Gramsci was a linguist, among other things. Um, and Gramsci's theory of language is deeply linked to his theory of, to the way he thinks about politics, and it's also very deeply spatial. So I think that uh, that, that, that this elaborated conception of articulation is, is useful in thinking about these multiple nationalisms. And what I want to do is pull out three that seem to me really important. Um, first of all is the rainbow nation. And of, uh, in the very early stages of the transition and in the early stages of the ANC's taking over the government, these inclusive 
discourses of the rainbow nation became uh, very closely associated with Mandela and, of course, with Bishop Tutu. And what they involved was sort of liberal ecclesiastical discourses of forgiveness that really made possible the negotiations to end apartheid. And um, they found then further expression in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, that was set in place in 1996. And somebody who's, who's made a very interesting argument about what he calls uh, indigenerality is Arisitas in his book, The Mandela Decade. And what he points out is that, um, that what is important about rainbowism, indigenerality and rainbowism, is that they're not, they were not just imposed from above, that they also have deep popular appeal, and to some extent still, still do. Um, however, what happened, and this is again Asitas' argument, is that what, what they did, what uh, rainbowism did was to abstract from and paper over um, the historical geographies of racial, uh, <coughs> excuse me, of racial oppression, exploitation, racialized dispossession. And they really started to, to, to fall apart, although there are moments when rainbowism reemerges and that re the rainbowist nationalism and the, um, the World Cup, the Soccer Cup, was, was, was one such moment. Now, a second dimension of producing the South African nation that I think is very important here uh, turned around, turns around the way the, the ANC government's immigration policies and practices. And one of the things that was really interesting is that indigenerality, if one wants to call it, and rainbowism coincided with what some scholars have called fortress South Africa. When the ANC came into power, one of the things that they did was to latch onto an especially pernicious piece of late apartheid legislation, something called the Aliens Control Act. Um, and what the ANC did was, and, and what the Aliens Control Act is premised on is really control, exclusion, expulsion. Uh, the ANC held on to the Aliens Control Act until 2002 when it was repealed and sort of reworked. But nevertheless, the, the, this new round of immigration legislation continues to embody these deeply exclusionary practices of bounding the nation. And they're associated with uh, incredible police corruption towards immigrants. They're associated with um, something called the Lindella Detention Camp, which is set up to, um, as a place where illegal immigrants are held before they're deported. And one of the interesting things about it is that this is privatized and the ANC Women's League has a healthy um, uh, uh, financial interest in Lindella. And you can't even begin to understand uh, the xenophobic attacks without understanding this second dimension of, nation of, of nationalizing practices. But the third, and to my mind, by far the most important dimension of post-apartheid 
uh, nationalisms. Really turn around the key words that are embodied in the ANC alliance, and that is the national question and the national democratic revolution. Um, the, the, national what, the national democratic revolution refers to um, a, an argument that the uh, South African Communist Party put together in the early 1960s and building on an, an earlier history that's interesting about how there would be a two-stage revolution. The first stage of the revolution would be um, a, a, a bourgeois revolution, but a national democratic bourgeois revolution. And that that would then um, deracialize South Africa and pave the way to socialism as the second stage of the revolution. Now, what is important about these discourses of the national question and the national democratic revolution is that fundamentally they were forged um, in the context of very fierce debates around race, class, and nationalism. Um, they were elaborated during the anti-apartheid struggle. They've been reworked over the course of the transition. And they continue to carry very deep popular resonance and are absolutely crucial to the ANC's hegemonic project. And part of what I try to show in the book is that the, <clears throat> the, uh, the way in which these discourses of the National Democratic Revolution have really become an intense site of struggle in the post-apartheid order. And one can identify moments of political struggle within the ANC which turn crucially around redefinitions and struggles over the meaning of the NDR and who owns it. And it, this was the case for Mbeki. It was the case for the Zuma era. It is very much the case. The NDI is a very central part of what Malema tries to do. Uh, and one of the things I also try to do in, um, in the book is to argue that the struggles over the articu of articulations of race, class, and nationalism are also deeply shot through with gender and sexuality and that they're all working in and through one another, and that this, again, is what a concept of articulation, I think, helps one to do, is to see how they, they operate in and through one another. Um, now, what I want to do now is sort of make an argument about how these articulations of... The, of the national question and the national democratic revolution are an absolutely crucial part of ANC hegemony. And what is so important about these discourses is that they carry really powerful, they are not just manipulations from above. They carry really powerful moral weight and they connect in, in very direct and specific ways with specific histories and memories and experiences and meanings of racial, of, of racial oppression, of racialized dispossession, of struggles against apartheid. 
and that it's precisely because of the way in which these official um, expressions of nationalism tap into popular understandings of freedom, justice, liberation from racial oppression. On the one hand, they, they are vital to and they bolster uh, the ruling bloc's hegemonic project in crucially important ways. But at the same time, because these calls are precisely because they are linked to, mem to popular memories and histories and meanings of freedom struggles and redress for wrongs of the past and visions of a new nation, they are immensely vulnerable to claims of betrayal and to the reclaiming of popular understandings of what is embodied in the national question. And the... <coughs> so that on the one hand, <coughs> the ruling bloc's capacity to, to tap into these deep veins of popular understanding is both the linchpin of its hegemonic power as well as a source of growing vulnerability. And this is the sort of the contradiction, I think, that lies at the heart of the ANC's hegemonic project. And the way to understand it is the, the way in which these, these articulations of the nation and liberation become so contentious and so inflamed turns crucially around the ways in which denationalization is operating in and alongside renationalization. So that there are both tensions and contradictions amongst these different dimensions of renationalization, but very importantly, between renationalization and denationalization. And it's in this context that the National Democratic Revolution has become an intensifying, a site of intensifying struggle. And that if we look back, we can see how what Mbeki did was to try to deploy non-class ideologies in order to neutralize the revolutionary potential of popular understandings. And here is where his denialism, I think, is, is tied up with the ways in which nationalism and sexuality are operating, the AIDS denialism. Is, it, it's it's an, a, an example of the way in which nationalism and sexuality operate in and through one another. I think what we saw with the struggle around Zuma was a capacity, instead of, of the Mbeki strategy of trying to contain revolutionary potential, that what Zuma tried to do was to develop that potential, but to try to keep it within limits. And what we've seen, I think part of what we've seen since 2007, is his inability to do that. And uh, Malema, one way of understanding what Malema is about, is seeing him as yet another effort to tap into and, and use um, uh, uh, this, this capacity. And what is, by the way, I think what is interesting about what Malema is up to with his arguments about nationalizing the mines and expropriation without compensation is the way in which nature and natural resources also become a crucial part of articulations of nationalism. Now, what I want to do now is turn to sort of the third piece of the argument. 
Um, and essentially, what I want to do is to expand on the argument that these processes of denationalization and renationalization represent the specific form of South Africa's passive revolution. And I think on one, on one level, that passive revolution represents, and the work that I wanted to do is really to provide a way of thinking relationally and comparatively about South Africa in relation to what is going on in other parts of the world, and also to think conjuncturally. Because I think what is very interesting about the moment of transition in South Africa in the early 1990s is that it was, it was a global conjunctural moment of, of the triumph of um, neoliberal forms of market capitalism on the one hand and liberal democracy on the other, but also, very importantly, of resurgent nationalisms in many different parts of the world that have proliferated um, and intensified in the context of the meltdown and of further uh, increases in inequality generations of surplus populations. But at the same time, I think what's also really important is that we cannot in any simple and direct way read politics directly off economic crises. And if we take Gramsci seriously, which I do very seriously, that what we have to do then is to work through what Gramsci called the relations of force at multiple levels. And I think his concept of passive revolution is very deeply linked to his analysis of situations and the relations of force at multiple levels. Now, at the same time, I think that there are also some really severe dangers and pitfalls in a concept like passive revolution. And one very obvious one is that it's so easy and, and seductive in some ways to set passive revolution up as some sort of abstract model or ideal type and then try to measure the, how different cases, how far different cases approximate or don't approximate to passive revolution. And this, of course, is a Weberian method that is fundamentally at odds with what Gramsci is on about. A second uh, really important potential danger of passive revolution, or using a concept like passive revolution, is one that Gramsci himself emphasized. And that is what he called the dangers of defeatism and of fatalism and of seeing passive revolution and its capacity to contain um, pressures from below as so powerful that, that, uh, that everything is sort of locked in place. And, um, this is, and, and there's also a huge debate that goes on over the whole issue of overstretching the concept of passive revolution. Um, now, the, the, the way that, what is so difficult about working with Gramsci is that there are many different readings of Gramsci. And my own reading has been very uh, importantly shaped by Peter Thomas's book, The Gramscian Revolution, which I think just provides, in the Anglophone literature, we've been so limited in, in our readings of Gramsci by not having access to the full notebooks. And Thomas makes the point that uh, our readings of Gramsci have come to us either via Althusser or via Perry Anderson. Uh, 
And what he does is a very profound critique of both Althusserian and Andersonian readings of passive revolution and provides an analysis that is um, heavily shaped by uh, um, work in, in Italy uh, and Germany. Um, and as I say, a very useful and important rereading of Gramsci by Peter Thomas and then Adam Morton has done some extremely useful work around passive revolution. There's also uh, a whole flood of new work around Gramsci's uh, work on language and translation, all of which I think are very useful with, uh, in, in, in engaging with um, the, the dangers and pitfalls. So that while all, all the way along in this analysis, I've really been drawing on this concept of passive revolution, but what I want to do now is to sort of make a little bit more explicit how I've been drawing on it, but also how I think engaging deeply and seriously with South Africa sort of speaks back to debates, uh, contemporary debates around passive revolution in the present conjuncture. So I think that what I want to do is end up by highlighting sort of three key points um, that seem to me to be useful in, in uh, thinking about how we might use passive revolution. And the first point really turns around a recognition of passive revolution in Gramsci's own work as a very deeply spatio-historical context, a concept. That what Gramsci did was to um, initially use the concept of passive revolution in order to talk about the Risorgimento in Italy and its difference with the French Revolution. But he then expanded it to um, talk about changes over uh, the, the 19th and into the 20th century. And in many ways, what Gramsci did was to show how passive revolution is, is a deeply dynamic concept and that there is nothing ideal, typical at all about it. Um, Adam Morton has done very important work around emphasizing the spatiality of passive revolution. And in, there's a very nice piece by him in the Gramsci book uh, entitled Traveling with Gramsci in which he really gets into what does it mean to use Gramsci in different times and places and making the point that you can't just plop a model of passive revolution down. You really have to engage deeply and seriously with historical geogra historically geographically specific but always interconnected processes. Um, also, that it's not just a matter of the East versus the West or the West versus the rest, but of really focusing on interconnections and mutual processes of constitution. And here is where relational conceptions of the production of space that have come to us from Lefebvre are really useful and interesting. But I would argue that in the context of South Africa, what we are challenged to think about are the specificities of anti-colonial struggles and post-colonial nationalisms. And the person who has given the most attention to this question is Parta Chatterjee in the context of India. Um, both in his 1986 book, Nationalist Thought in the Post-Colonial World, and in a more recent set of essays beginning in 2008 about, around what he calls 
um, a new phase of pass- a second phase of passive revolution in India. But basically, Chatterjee's initial argument was that passive revolution is the general form of transition um, to from colonial to post-colonial societies in the 20th century. Now, to be blunt, I have some really sharp differences with Chatterjee, which I don't have time to elaborate, but if anybody wants to ask a question, I'd be happy to go into that. But it seems to me that Fanon really provides us with a far more powerful and nuanced understanding. Although Fanon did not directly... Uh, use a concept of passive revolution. I think we can see in the wretched of the earth a much more useful way of thinking um, about what really is. I mean, what he was talking about in the pitfalls of national consciousness was passive revolution in some sense. Um, What Fanon really also does is makes absolutely clear that race, ethnicity, as well as gender and sexuality have to be understood as active constitutive forces, which is something that has not happened in analyses of um, passive revolution. And that I think more generally for Gramsci scholarship, what taking South Africa seriously does is it forces on one um, what I'm going to be calling a properly post-colonial understanding that is not just about uh, what Gramsci was talking about, which was the relationship between the French Revolution on one hand and the Russian Revolution on the other hand, that if we are going to take seriously questions of race, we also have to pay attention to the Haitian Revolution and to the ways in which race and slavery were actually were absolutely central to the making of the modern world. And that we need to be telling what, what Susan Buck Morse calls a, a more universal history out of all of this. So the second sort of key point that I want to make around uh, and and the whole question of how we think about history is absolutely central to how we use a concept of passive revolution. So the second really important dimension that seems to me uh, uh, we need to pay careful attention to turns crucially around the way in which passive revolution directs our attention to questions of bourgeois hegemony. Um, and that what is important here is taking seriously Gramsci's analysis of state and civil society or political society and civil society. And one of my beefs with Partichatterji is the way he deforms these concepts um, and in the process makes it impossible to take on or to engage questions of hegemony more generally. But I think crucially what is needed here, and this is sort of uh, very much part of Gramsci's own warning about the dangers of defeatism, that the reason why this sort of understanding is so important is precisely that it's an understanding of hegemony as always fragile, as always shot through with slippages, openings, contradictions that open up the possibility for something else to emerge. Um, Another reason 
why I think passive revolution is really important, is that it was Gramsci who really talked about how in the latter part of the 19th century, in the context of um, imperialism, the, the passive revolution became much more elaborated, and he talked quite directly about what Foucault subsequently called biopolitical, uh, uh, the biopolitical. And Gramsci really talked about how what happened with the elaboration of these um, techniques of government is the way in which um, states adopted strategies of essentially rendering technical that which is political. I think in some sense that what is important here is that focusing on the way Gramsci used a, a, a passive revolution to talk about precisely these issues is it lets us incorporate some of Foucault's insights um, and remembering that I think he actually stole the idea from Gramsci in the first place and elaborated it, but it lets us build on his insights but, but put them back into what I think is a much more powerful Gramscian framework, which precisely gets at the contradictory dynamics. And I think that Sherrod's work around biopolitics has engaged precisely this set of questions. So that the political stakes in all of this are really essential because they turn around the imperative of grasping the constitution of bourgeois hegemony in order to dismantle it. And they also point to the imperative for denaturalizing nationalisms. And that is where a specifically spatialized understanding that I laid out in part one, I think is essential to any project of denaturalizing nationalisms. Now, finally, in the third piece of all of this, um, it seems to me that any, any uh, concept of passive revolution worth its salt needs to take very seriously Gramsci's philosophy of praxis. And this is where Thomas's book, I think, does an absolutely superb job of really laying out um, an, an understanding of philosophy of praxis, which was not, for Gramsci, just a code word for Marxism, but a very fundamental way of engaging with um, the inseparability between thought and action, of making theory practical, of, making, of rendering all truths subject to question, of understanding how truth itself is produced. Um, and how this in turn sort of links with with what Gramsci saw as the imperative in relation to subaltern classes for um, organic intellectuals to start with, common, with fragmented uh, common sense and through a mutual process of transformation move towards rendering common sense more critical and more coherent. And of course this is exactly where Gramsci and Fanon um, converge very directly and I think what's interesting about both of them is that they were both interested in questions of space and language and uh, for both of them a concept of politics that was deeply informed by spatiality, language and translation in turn deeply linked with spatio-historical understandings. 
And uh, Thomas has a very nice quote that I'm going to end with, where he talks about, and I'm going to, I've, I've sort of tweaked it around a bit, but it seems to me that you know, what, what he's saying is that what is so important about an understanding of philosophy of praxis is to rethink the concrete forms in which a materialist conception of history and a critique of political economy um, can move from being the preserve of small groups of people and become the basis for genuinely democratic processes. And um, the chances, of course, of that happening in South Africa realistically are small. Uh, but at the same time, it seems to me it's really important that we hold on to um, at least some understanding of those possibilities. So I will stop there, and thank you. Thank you, Jill. Um, we have some time for questions. The pon has a question. Hi, Dr. Hart. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give you my interpretation of some of the things you said, a, a bit of a remix of some of your... Okay. Um, and I'm not as um, deeply engaged with uh, the South African case, but um, in your elaboration of denational and renational, it seems to me that for some reason the economic... I mean, to be crude about it, the economic space seems to be denationalized while the political space is renationalized as, as a way to legitimate um, these processes. So in, in that sense, if, if you think about them in, as you know, left and right or side by side, um, in some ways, uh, denationalization is enabled. The persistence, you know, so, you're, so passive revolution either allows for the persistence of denationalization through renationalization, re or we come to, or we can think of in a Polanyan sense, right? This, mm -hmm. It seems, you know, that you're kind of the economy and the society is really are becoming disembedded. Sure. And so, in that sense, um, I don't know if, in the end of this South African case that you've presented, we're left with the conclusion that either there is a regenerating counter move that's chronic, and mm -hmm. we can expect it to stay chronic, you know, through this persistence, or if, or um, if. We can think about new ways to renationalize. You know, why don't we think about renationalizing in, in sort of more economic terms as well? Why are they, why is it only in sort of um, social fascist sort of terms? I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it's it's a great question. Thank you. Should we take a group of questions? Yeah, um, on the um, thank you. I'm the former intelligence analyst in the. British Customs Service covering the ex-Soviet states, and so I was extremely interested in your comments about the um, mineral energy complex, which of course is very similar there, and uh, I believe the South African and Kremlin links are deep and long, and often somewhat uh, bizarre, but nonetheless very real. My question is um, your comments regarding capital flight and the sheer gigantic scale of this are we seeing that by um, ANC elites as well um, as well as the traditional white business class and perhaps divide that into both 
English-speaking and Afrikaner-speaking. And um, in what are perhaps the more visible signs that this may be really escalating and may become becoming a big-scale insurance policy? I mean, I would suggest some of the indicators there are going to um, um, capital flight havens, which are frankly no longer under Western influence, such as Mauritius or Dubai, maybe Singapore, um, Cyprus, and also um, the um, massive, uh, large-scale enrollment of the children of the elite at British mm-hmm. and American private schools and universities, which is not a facetious point. Mm-hmm. Would you like to take these two? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, you know, that I'm, I'm really glad you, ra- you pushed me on, that, on the question of... Uh, D and Re, because obviously what I want to avoid is cordoning off the economic and the political, right? Um, so, you know, maybe something I need to make more... Ex- at the same time, what, it's certainly the case that the, what I'm calling these processes of denationalization turns around the specific form of accumulation, but I think it's simultaneously economic, political, and cultural. And that if that a, what a proper analysis would do uh, would understand these, these multiple dimensions. And, you know, for example, the whole question of how understandings of the economy come to be produced is itself a deeply, is, is, is simultaneously cultural and economic, right? The relations between capital and the state through which denationalization has happened is simultaneously political and economic. They're working together and through one another. Yeah? Um, So, you know, I think the argument I'm really trying to make is that there are sort of dialectical interconnections between de- and renationalization. And that part of the reason, part of what is going on here is that corporate capital really needs the ANC in order to keep things, to, you know, to put it crudely, to keep the lid on things. Yeah? And one of the very interesting things that happened at the time of Bridell was that one of the um, uh, chief commentators for, for Business Day, which is the main capitalist newspaper in South Africa, said... This is the end of the beginning of the end. And I think what he was saying is that we have reached a point where we we are no longer so sure that the ANC can keep things under control. And, of course, the way in which the ANC exercises hegemony is simultaneously political, economic, cultural. Um, At the same time, I think what I'm trying to pull out is that these articulations of the nation and liberation are an absolutely central part of the hegemonic project of the ANC. And, you know, what I'm really trying to do here is is exactly a sort of what Gramsci talked about as, as an analysis of the relations of force at multiple levels. So that it's not a crude political economic distinction, and I, and I really do need to make that a lot clearer. 
but it's, it's specific sets of practices and processes and meanings that are playing out in an ongoing way in relation to one another. So, you know, that's the way, when I talk about denationalization it's, and rena, it's not, it's not a thing, it's, 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 it's a process and processes and meanings that are, that are multifaceted. So does that get at your question? But, uh, you know, it's really useful to be reminded that, that one needs to make that explicit because it is really easy to fall into the trap of saying it's, it's politics versus economics, which is itself a bourgeois distinction. It's, it's the basis of liberalism as a distinction between politics and economics that I want to avoid at all costs. So, you know, the question of capital flight, I haven't worked directly on this, so I can't speak with any uh, authority on it. There's a very uh, comprehensive article by Ashman, Fine, and Newman in the Journal of Southern African Studies 2011. Um, and it's got a great title, which um, I can't bring to mind right now. But, you know, what they do is they distinguish between legal and illegal capital flight. They show how the Treasury, just at the moment that the ANC is being its most interventionist and developmental state and all of that stuff, is basically opening the door to capital and saying, excuse me, please let us make it easy for you. It's stunning what has been going on. I mean, they wrote this article in a rage. <laughs> but, you know, what they did was to try to get, of course what's so difficult is getting estimates of illegal capital flight. So what they do is they have various, and they lay this out in great detail, of, of the means by which they've tried to estimate illegal capital flight and really show how over the 2000s, every year it's gone up. So that it is, I think, exactly um, an insurance policy. And remember, this, this research was done prior to Marikana. And, uh, you know, no doubt in the wake of Marikana, more and more capital has been fleeing. So, um, and this is, uh, I'm pretty sure, applies as much to white corporate capital as it does to black corporate capital. And I think you can bet your bottom pound that Cyril Ramaphosa is as eagerly engaged in it as the Oppenheimers. Hi, um, thank you for such an illuminating um, uh, presentation. Um, I'd, li I'd like you to ask you to comment on, um, uh, on how particular processes of resurgence of traditionalism or, or kind of customary leadership yeah. have fed into these processes of de- and re-nationalisation that you describe, it seems to me that that could be another site of the, uh, of the types of contradictions of both um, he hegemony and vulnerability that, that you describe, but I'd be interested to hear what, what your views are on that. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. And a question back You mentioned earlier the extraordinary unrolling of social grants and so on in South Africa. And of course, it's not just in South Africa because it's happened in Botswana and Namibia as well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is, I think this is quite a very interesting thing. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit more on where you feel this fits in, sure. in all of this. Sure, and I'd be happy to do that. 
Um, this is also about um, de and renationalization. Um, and I guess what I, I was, I'm sort of struggling with, and, and which maybe you can elaborate on, is the extent to which that that's unique to, to South Africa. Um, because, you know, you can you can think of, of examples of capital flight post independence, examples of a, a complex process of, of reimagining the nation. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you could just talk about sure. what's unique in the South African context about that. Sure, no, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, these, these are all great questions. Thank you. So, look, so you look, the, the whole question of traditionalism is, you, you're absolutely right, it's extremely important. And, you know, what we've seen is an increasing move towards um, reinstating traditional authorities. Um, one of the things I think that's really interesting about this is that it's not, it's different in, uh, uh, maybe this is somewhat controversial, and maybe this will spark a bit of debate, but it seems to me that, that one, uh, that for all that Zuma is very much, you know, about Zulu, Zuluness, that nevertheless what we have not seen in South Africa is the same sort of ethnic divisions that have happened in many other parts of Africa. And I think that that may have partly to do with the incredibly crude way that the apartheid state used ethnicity. But at the same time, this tradition, the, the reinstatement of, of traditional authorities is extremely important and significant. Um, and, and is itself, of course, just totally shot through with contradictions. You know, this is not something that I've done direct research on, but, um, you know, many people are arguing that the way in which traditional authorities get reinstated, you know, is not only very often devastating to women's land rights as well as to women on a, on a whole lot of other fronts, um, but also feeds into these highly concentrated forms of accumulation to the extent that resources are channeled through traditional authorities. So, yeah, I mean, the, and of course it, it, it is also a, 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 um, a re-energizing of, of the Bantu stunts, yeah? Um, you know, on the other side of this, I mean, what's very happen interesting about what's happened in KwaZulu-Natal under Zuma is the collapse, or uh, not the total collapse, but the significant weakening of the Encarta Freedom Party and the way in which many people from IFP have been brought over into ANC. And, um, you know, in the areas where I work, just intense conflict. Um, and there have been a number of political killings in, uh, in KwaZulu-Natal. There was a front page story in the New York Times the other day about a counselor who was killed. Um, but, you know, when you put this together with the highly contradictory dynamics going on around local government that I haven't had time to talk about, it's an extremely explosive situation that feeds right back into um, these larger contradictions. So, you know, the, the thing about social grants, okay, here's what's really interesting about social grants, I think, is not only the size, because they have increased very significantly, but from the early 2000s, there was a push coming from the unions and churches and so forth for a basic income grant, a sort of a universal basic income grant, whereby everybody would get 
you know, not a, lot, a small amount, but the argument was that uh, at higher income levels, it would be clawed back through the taxation system. But the significance of the basic income grant is it's universal, so it's, it's, you, you don't have to be means tested. And what the ANC has consistently done is to refuse any to even think about the basic income grant. And in the early 2000s, Alec Irwin, a former communist who was um, at that time the Minister of Trade, uh, was heard to say that the problem with the basic income grant is not the money, it's the idea. And so I think that's very interesting. But the thing is that these social grants are old age pensions, child support grants, disability grants. So you, it's, in other words, they're all qualified grants uh, as opposed to universal grants. Now what South Africa has resisted is um, these uh, Brazilian type grants where, you know, it, 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 conditional grants. South Africa has refused conditional grants, which are very widespread in other parts of the world. Um, but nevertheless, and I think what those conditional grants are all about is exactly the sort of biopolitical intervention where you're sort of trying to steer people to, to, behave, to behave well. Um, but nevertheless, I think that this refuse, that this, this holding on to um, conditional grant, to, to um, uh, specific grants as opposed to universal ones, has a very important sort of political implications attached to it. Um, the question about whether de- and renationalization are unique to South Africa, it, it's actually a really interesting question. And, you know, I think they are especially vivid in the context of South Africa, you know, given uh, apartheid, apartheid struggles in the 80s, you know, freedom in the 90s, and, and all these things sort of coming together. But, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to reflect on Indian debates. And one of the things that's really interesting about what happened in India in the early 1990s in the context of the collapse of the Congress Party was the simultaneous rise of Hindutva, of, of a re-articulation of Hindu nationalism, which had always sort of, Manu Goswami's book, Producing India, shows how um, the sort of liberal, liberal democratic articulations of Indian nationalism always contained within them the sort of Hindu nationalism that then get pulled out um, by, uh, by the Hindu right um, and, and, and result in these incredible pogroms against Muslims. But the really interesting question is that this also happens in the context of um, the, in, uh, the liberalization of the Indian economy and the politics surrounding all of that. And, you know, it seems to me this is an extremely interesting question. There's a guy by the name of Gopala Krishnan who has an interesting piece on the relations between them. Um, I just, Ahmed has thought about this, but it seems to me there's really interesting and important work to be done um, in other parts of the world. And, you know, India is the one that springs most readily to mind. Jill, I think we are out of time. Is it 8 o'clock? We have room till... So I'm afraid we have to end this by thanking you for coming, and thanks for your questions.